0: What is going on everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host James Murphy aka Murph and thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Episode number 142. I cannot wait to dive into this episode. We have a lot to discuss about obviously in regards to the Boston Celtics staving off elimination in Game 6, forcing a Game 7 against the Carolina Hurricanes in their series. Celtics tonight face elimination in Game 6 in Milwaukee as they face the Milwaukee Bucks in Game 6 as they are down three games to two. So we're going to be talking about that. And then also, I do have a little bit of Red Sox uh, news to talk about. Something that has surfaced as of late with the most recent Red Sox struggles, or I should say the struggles that the Red Sox have been going through all season long. So we're going to talk about that first, then the Bruins, then the Celtics as well. I know the Patriots schedule came out last night, and to be honest, I think that's the least of our worries right now with everything that's going on. Again, the Red Sox struggles. Is this going to be persistent all season long? You also have the Bruins in a win-or-go-home Game in game seven, which will be tomorrow on Saturday. But you have the Celtics in a win or go home situation tonight in Milwaukee. So there's a lot to talk about here in the New England area for both playoffs and just regular season. And oh my goodness! But before we get into any of that, I do want to say again, thank you so much for downloading, listening, and enjoying this episode. If you're listening to this episode on audio only platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, Alexa, Stitcher, wherever. Did I say Amazon Alexa? I did, didn't I? Whew, that's an interesting one. I think that's probably a first, but, you know, we'll just keep going. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, thank you so much for clicking on this video. Please make sure you smash the thumbs up button, comment down below any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, anything you have, and also please consider subscribing to the channel if you're new or have not considered subscribing. You can reach me on social media at Cartown on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But with the pleasantries out of the way, with the pleasantries out of the way, hopefully you had a fantastic week, first of all. Hopefully you've been enjoying the nice weather that we're having these past couple days. I know it was chilly earlier in the week, but hey, the past couple days in this weekend is going to be absolutely beautiful, and I cannot wait, cannot wait for more weather like that. Oh, I'm so excited, and I think you should be as well. But we do have some unfortunate news to talk about in regards to the Boston Red Sox. I want this ad to go away on my computer. And this is an article that came out, I believe, last night. Let's see, is there a published date? Came out yesterday, uh, yesterday being May 12th, that is a Thursday, and it's from the Boston Herald. And it is titled, Red Sox Trading Alexander Bogarts, A Nightmare Not Far From Reality. So with the Red Sox struggles this season, there obviously are concerns that the Red Sox could trade players in order to kind of rebuild for the future. With Alexander Bogarts more than likely to decline his player option at the end of the season... Trading Xander Bogarts from a business perspective doesn't seem like the worst idea. Now, from a fan perspective, it is the worst idea. But there have been rumors that the St. Louis Cardinals could be in the mix for a player like Xander Bogarts, where they've just demoted Paul DeJong, their current shortstop, due to his poor performance. And a lot of, you know, insiders across uh, Major League Baseball are linking Bogarts to the Cardinals. Now it is today, May 13th, so it's still fairly early into the season. But like I've said before on this podcast, I've said it last year and I've said it this year, 40-60 to games is the mark. That's the mark to kind of see where you're going to be. It allows the teams that are bad, that started off hot, to cool down. It allows the teams that are good but started bad to heat up. I think 40-60 to games, kind of that first... 25% of the season or so is a good little mark. Now, we are currently 31 games into the season as we sit. The Red Sox had an off day on Thursday, so their uh, 32nd game will be today. So it's still a little too early to tell. And I was listening on the radio because they were also talking about it. And it's like, give it till the end of May. Come June 1st, we'll see where we're really at. Well, that is not that far away. It's about, what is it? Thirteenth, one, two, two and a half weeks away. Two and a half weeks to make up a lot of ground. Not only in uh the division, but just in the American League. I know I know there's the expanded playoffs, but it still doesn't look all that good. I mean, you're in last place by twelve games behind the Yankees. Now, all the credit to the Yankees. They've been playing absolutely incredible. You know, going on with an 11-game winning streak or whatever it was. They're 8-2 in their last 10 games. But the Sox, they're 2-8 in their last 10 games, 12 games out of first place, and are the third worst team in the American League, only behind the Kansas City Royals and the Detroit Tigers, who, by the way, are only 6.5 and and 9 games back out of, the American League Central division lead, respectively. So, I mean, even those, uh, those teams with god-awful records, such as yourself, they're closer to the top of the Central than you are with your marginally better record than you being at the top of the American League East. So, it's like, what direction is this ball club going in? What direction is this Red Sox team proceeding in? Quite frankly, I don't know. I really do not know. Again, 31 games into the season. There was a stat. Oh, where was it? I think I was listening on the radio. It might have been Wednesday, maybe. It might have been Monday. or No, they were off one Monday. Now, this past week, I was driving home from the shop. I want to say it was Wednesday. And on the radio, they said that the team had blown a league-leading eight saves at that point. I believe it was eight. And then I believe Hansel Robles ended up blowing that save. So whenever that game was, it could have been Sunday, it could have been Saturday last week, I'm not exactly sure. You take, so I think it's now nine blown saves. You convert six or seven of those into wins. Now you're, you're, you know, you have... Six or seven more wins and six or seven more losses. You're kind of in that middle of the American League East battling for, you know, the division with the Yankees, with the Blue Jays, with the the Rays. But like, this is the problem that the Red Sox have is that they don't have a closer. They don't have a guy to rely on. Like, at the end of the day, we can all agree that Chris Sale is probably the Red Sox's best pitcher, period. Just pitcher. Not starter, not reliever, not closer. He's the best pitcher, right? But he's a starter, so we can, you know, all agree that Chris Sale is the Red Sox's best starting pitcher because he's a starter and he's their best pitcher. Who can you say is the Red Sox's best reliever? You could probably argue that any of them are their are the best uh, reliever, but none of them really are. So it's just really, really tough to wrap your head around the fact that you need a closer in this team has ignored the closing position for about a year and a half now. So let me, I know I've kind of digressed a little bit and talked about the Red Sox and ranted about them. Let me read the article by Jason Mastrodonato from the Boston Herald. Again, this article is headlined, Red Sox trading Xander Bogarts, a nightmare not far from reality. If we had known in March that the Red Sox were looking at Trevor Story not as an addition but as a replacement for Xander Bogarts, Approximately 100% of the fan base would have offered an empathetic no thanks. As good as Story was during his first six big league seasons with the Rockies, to replace the Red Sox' franchise player who had won two World Series titles, four Silver Sluggers, and has earned MVP votes in four straight seasons with Story is not a good trade. At this point, that's what it's looking like. And with the Red Sox off to an 11 and 20 start, that has offered very little to be encouraged about, the baseball world is abuzz talking about where Bogarts could end up if the Sox don't turn things around in the next month or two. They're 11 and a half games back of the Yankees in the American League East and it's only mid-May. Sure, three wild cards in an expanded playoff format will allow some mediocre teams to sneak into October, but the Sox aren't even sniffing distance. This, the top six teams in the American League make the playoffs. The Sox are currently 14th. Even mild improvements might not be enough to get the Red Sox into contention by July, when Chief Baseball Officer Haim Bloom will most, almost certainly be looking to continue his aggressive reboot of the farm system. The Red Sox need more than mild improvement. They need a complete makeover. How they get there is anyone's guess, but Bloom and company have been preaching patience. Their lack of aggression in roster changes back that up. Tristan Cassis is still on AAA Worcester. So too is Jaron Duran. Bobby Dahlbeck is still on the big league roster. The fourth outfielder is Christian Arroyo. The closer, Matt Barnes, is currently a mop-up guy. There doesn't appear to be any urgency, and that's fine. Calling up a top prospect into an offense that isn't producing on a $220 million team with loads of pressure, that's not an ideal way to break into the big leagues. But it's also a reminder that one player probably isn't going to save a team that has nothing working on offense. A bullpen that's 6 for 15, 40% in save opportunities. Okay, so that number that I was talking about has, you know, drastically increased. Uh, 6 for 15. They've had 15 save opportunities, right? This is kind of going to the point that I was talking about earlier. They've had 15 save opportunities. They have converted 6. That's nine losses on the board. That is literally the difference in your record right now. You're 11 and 20. Those nine blown saves could be nine wins. And right now you're 20 and 11 and what, two games out of first place behind the Yankees. Just say you don't convert all of them. You're still 18 and what, 13? Still what, five games behind the Yankees? I mean, that's just the importance of having a closer. And I've already talked about that, but like, oh my God. In a rotation that has performed well, but has forty three million dollars tied up in three pitchers on the injured list in Chris Sale, James Paxton, and Michael Walker. At this point, well, Michael Walker was doing good before he went on the injured list. So let's 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 kind of you know slide that for a second. At this point, with the Sox's playoff chances at thirteen percent, according to baseball reference, it's more likely than not that the Red Sox and others will be traded in July. Two years after the Sox traded one franchise player in Mookie Betts, They could soon wave goodbye to another, and their third, Raphael Devers, is just a year and a half away from free agency. It's a nightmare scenario that became apparent on opening day. Bogart's deadline for contract extension negotiations, he already signed one team-friendly deal paying him $20 million a year, but he's a $25 to $30 million player, and a trip into free agency would prove that. He can and is expected to opt out of the remaining three years $60 million after the year. He also has a full no-trade clause, but if the Sox are out of contention in July and he can go to a winning team, would he actually reject that deal? The New York Post reported that the only extension offer the Sox offered was $30 million on top of that, meaning he'd have four years, $90 million remaining. It's a nice offer for a kid who grew up in Aruba dreaming of making the big leagues one day. It's an insulting offer to a major league player with Bogart's pedigree. The industry is ne- uh, keenly aware of that, too. MLB.com's Mark Fienzen, hope I hope I'm saying that correctly, reported that an AL executive think the Sox will get overwhelmed by an offer and trade Bogarts this summer. Major League Baseball Network's John Morassi said that it, quote, could be realistic that Bogarts gets traded to the Cardinals. The Athletic's Jim Bowden also projected a trade to St. Louis and wrote, quote, if their position doesn't significantly change, then it makes sense to seek the best trade for Bogarts because he will likely opt out of his contract after the season. End quote. It's not just Bogarts. Imagine the haul the Sox could get for Bogarts, JD Martinez and Nathan Eovaldi, all of whom could test free agent after the free agency after the summer. After the season, excuse me. They have others too who are on expiring deals and could be traded among them. Michael Walker, Kike Hernandez, Jackie Bradley Jr., Christian Vasquez, Matt Strom, Rich Hill, Hansel Robles, and Kevin Ploiecki. Still, if the Sox trade Bogarts, they're going to spend years trying to reshape their image. Imagine being a budding star in the farm system like Marcelo Meyer and thinking something like, quote, I can win two titles, be a four-time All-Star, regular MVP candidate, and the organization is still going to trade me rather than pay me a fair market wage? If folks had known this would be the case when the Sox signed Story, the reaction from the fan base surely would have been different. Story was supposed to be an addition, not a replacement. Or worse, maybe he was always a replacement. Now, I really like this article for a bunch of different reasons. And to be honest, this is the first time I read the article. I I read like the first paragraph or two just to kind of make sure we're talking about what we're supposed to be talking about here. But the article by... um, uh, Jason Master Donato goes into full depth about the whole, the current landscape of the Boston Red Sox now, what it was supposed to look like at this point now with the addition of story. However, what it has turned into, even with the addition of story, like calling up Tristan Cassis, Jaron Duran, demoting Dahlbeck is not going to completely save the Boston Red Sox, at least their offense. It's not. Will it help? Sure. Cassis looks good down in AAA. Duran's been up and down a little bit with the Red Sox. But they're not going to save the team. Would I rather see Jaron Duran get four at-bats a game than Jackie Bradley Jr.? 100%. Will it, is it going to turn the Red Sox into a 20-win club over the course of a night and get you back into the division race? Probably not. It's just... I, I said this, I said this, I said this countless times. When you had Betts and Benintendi, I was okay with trading one of them because you weren't going to uh, pay both of them. Mookie Betts wanted $40 million a year to stay here. He wasn't going to get that. that was the only way he was going to stay in Boston is if we paid him $40 million a year. I don't think he was worth it. And the way that he's been playing sure is backing that up because right now is he making $30, $32.5 or whatever with L.A.? Doesn't look like it's pain, uh, panning out. Yeah, they won a World Series, but it was in 2020. Call it a makeup up uh, garbage year, sure. Whatever. They traded Mookie Betts. I'm like, all right, let's, you know, re-sign Benintendi, fan favorite. You could arguably, you know, kind of make him be the face, but, you know, he still had Bog- uh, Bogarts at the time. So, it's like, you know, it could be one and two. Nope, you trade Benintendi as well. Okay. Now you have Bogarts. Who has been the who is the longest tenured Red Sox player? But you're arguably going to trade him before the end of the season and not re-sign him. It's mind-boggling that you go from franchise player Mookie Betts gone, are uh, you know a possible, an arguable franchise player in Andrew Benintendi gone. You lost the fan base. Twenty twenty, you suck. So the fan base was completely taken out of the Red Sox's per- perception. And then you're going to trade Alexander Bogarts after you won the fans back, after what you were able to do with last postseason. The fans got back on board. You were two wins from the World Series. But you're not going to pay Alexander Bogarts and you're going to ship him out. Losing three homegrown franchise players in, what is it, uh, four years? When did you uh, trade Betts? You traded him... I figure when you trade him and yeah, less than three years, right? Hold on. Cause I know the beds deal went down first. Uh, Mookie bets trade. When did that break down? February 4th, 2020. So it's been just over two years and you're going to trade Mookie bets, Andrew Benintendi and Alexander Bogarts. So call it around two and a half years. If you move Bogarts, you know, in July around the deadline, Oh, man, that's that's a tough pill to swallow for a Red Sox team. How, it's hard to, like these players, grow an emotional attachment to them. When it comes time to pay them after, you know, arbitration's over, they're just going to get rid of them. It's like, I mean, if Bogarts goes, you could probably expect Devers to go too because he's publicly said that he doesn't want to sign an extension unless Xander Bogarts is here. So if Bogarts isn't here, then you might as well say good- goodbye to Rafael Devers as well. Now, the Red Sox being 11 and 20, could they easily change that and become a winning team? I'm a true believer, and a lot of people are, that winning fixes all. The Red Sox go on a massive tear. They're obviously going to keep Bogarts on the roster because they're going to need him for the playoff push. They win a World Series. Hey, you know, some things could change, right? He might, you know, opt out, but re sign. Winning arguably cures all. But right now the Red Sox aren't winning, and they're getting nothing cured. Would I like to see Kike Hernandez traded at the deadline? Yes, I think he's overrated. Jackie Bradley Jr.? See you later. I'm a big fan of Christian Vasquez. I think he's a very good defensive-minded catcher. His offense is atrocious. I'd rather have Connor Wong in the starting lineup daily. You can ship out Kevin Plawecki, and whatever you can get for these other guys, ship like I mean, Rich Hill's not part of the long-term picture, so sh- uh, send him out as well. I like Hansel Robles, but, I mean, is, is it going to be worth keeping him if you can get another prospect or two? Fine, send him out. But this Red Sox team, the way that it's looking right now, by the time we reach August, August 1st, this team could look drastically different. And I don't know how I'm going to brace for that. However, we need to brace for that because this team that we see trotting out into the field whenever the lineup comes out, for may 13th against the rangers may look completely different on august 1st because if you're not able if you trade Bogarts and you're still sucking what's going to stop you from trading raphael devers because you'll get way more in return if you trade devers this year than if you do next year that's just a fact if you traded mookie Betts a year before you would have probably got alex verdugo jeter downs Gavin Lux, maybe Dustin May from the Dodgers. But since you only traded him with a year of control left, there's no guarantee that he was going to re sign with the Dodgers. So, you know, the deal worked out the way that it did. And then, of course, he did re sign because they threw him a bunch of money. But that's my Red Sox take with Xander Bogarts. I know I, you know, I just spent 20 minutes talking about the Red Sox and Bogarts. I didn't plan on it. However, it's something that needed to be addressed because obviously it is near and dear to all of us all of our hearts because we all love I'd say 98.5% of Red Sox fans love Alexander Bogarts so I do something that we absolutely had to talk about but let's transition over to the Boston Bruins and let's talk about their immaculate game 6 victory facing elimination as they beat the Carolina Hurricanes 5 to 2 at the TD Garden last night in the most important game of the season. Charlie Coyle with a goal and assist. Brad Marchand with a goal and assist. Derek Forbort with a goal. Eric Holla with a goal. Curtis Lazar with a goal. What is the one theme there? Secondary scoring. Second, Besides Brad Marchand, obviously. You were able to get secondary scoring from guys on your third and your fourth line. Something that has been... A problem for a long time now. You know, probably for the majority of the second half of the season, and then obviously so far here in the first round, is you were relying on Patrice Bergeron too much. You were relying on David Pastrnak too much. You could even say you were relying on Taylor Hall too much. I know he's been quiet, but still, getting goals from Charlie Coyle, Derek Forbort, Eric Halla, Curtis Lazar, is a formula, or is the formula. For the Bruins to have deep playoff success. Now, yes, it's nice to see, you know, David Pasternak put up two, three goals a night and Bergeron to get, you know, a goal and two, three assists. It's nice to see that. We all want to see that. But that's not a winning formula. All these teams in the NHL and every series is going deep. Every single series is going deep, six, seven games, which is good. It's good for the league. But that just shows how competitive this playoff field is and the Bruins need to keep up with that because you're playing one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference right now in the Carolina Hurricanes but if you do advance regardless who advanced with you and who you play in the second round they're going to be just as good and you're gonna have to get scoring from Charlie Coyle you're gonna have to get scoring from you know Eric Halla and Curtis Lazar not night in and night out obviously but I mean Patrice Bergeron was a complete goose egg across the board. He had four shots. That's it. He won face-offs. He played defense. And he you know, was a factor on offense, you know, distributing the puck, setting up other plays, typically. But that wasn't him on, in Game 6. Again, yeah, he won the face-offs. He played some good defense. But other than that, in Game 6, he absolutely did nothing. Posternak again, was you know he, he didn't do anything. He had an assist in three shots, but that's just about it. He had no goals either. So it's good to see that, you know, not just Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak are scoring. If the Bruins want to win Game 7, they're going to have to get secondary scoring from other players as well. I know a lot of people were pointing at Jake DeBrusque, Taylor Hall, Craig Smith, Trent Frederick as players that need to step up and score goals. And I couldn't agree more. As long as it's not Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak always scoring, I don't care where the secondary scoring comes from because you're getting it through the other seven, uh, the other 15 skaters that you have on your roster. I mean, Craig Smith had a nice little breakaway. It was blocked by, um, by Ranta, but still, nice little opportunity there set up by, I believe, Bergeron did pass him that puck on that breakaway. You know, Pasternak had a few good looks there. You know, Charlie McAvoy had some good looks. The team in general played excellent offense. But it was all, it was just about all rooted from their excellent defense. They were flying around. They were hitting. They were playing aggressive. They were finishing those hits. They were making crisp, clean passes. There were some passes that looked a little sloppy, a little too far behind or too far ahead. But, you know, that's going to happen over the course of a game. You can't expect the team to be perfect. But just, I don't know, just playing in Boston, obviously, you know, each of the Holton teams have won so far through the first six games. But I think the biggest difference for the Bruins and why they were able to really get this victory here in Game 6 and will be a crucial key and a crucial factor for them in Game 7 if they want to win that game is the fact that they scored first. Through five games, through the first five games, the Carolina Hurricanes had scored first in every single game, leaving the Bruins to always come from behind, which the Bruins were able to do so in games three and four in Boston. You know, they were able to win games three and games four, but they had to come back from behind. They lost game one, two, and five because they were playing from behind. Whereas they were able to open up the game with a one nothing lead in the second period to put themselves ahead then they scored a second goal so now you have the Hurricanes playing from behind playing with a little bit of uh, a chip on their shoulder a little bit of desperation a little bit of you know you know you know, clenching of, of, of the fist because you know oh, don't want to go back home for game seven you know let's just finish it here finish it now so the Bruins you know had the confidence going that is the major difference is you get to dictate the play, you get to dictate the pace of play. When you're up from a, uh, when you're up and ahead, when you're down and always playing from behind, you don't have that luxury. You don't because, hey, especially you know here in Game Six when you're facing elimination, if you go down one nothing, now the pressure's on you to get a goal. Oh my God, you have to get a goal. You've Gotta get a goal. And the only way you're gonna win, is if you get two goals. The only way you're gonna win is if you get two goals when you're playing from behind so being able to get that first goal on the board you're up one nothing can't play easy but there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress that is lifted off of you because now you don't have to go out and score two goals in order to win just clamp down play good defense let the offense flow naturally and hopefully put another puck in the net to extend that lead and that is something that they were able to do that was something that they were able to do, go up 2 0. Now you're putting the Hurricanes in a position that they have to score three goals in order to win. Again, if that's the Bruins and they're down 1 0, all the pressure's on them to score another goal. The Hurricanes can fly around, play loose. And if they were to score a second goal, now the Bruins have to score three goals in order to win that game. And that is a theme that we were seeing in game one, two, and five, especially those games, because those games they lost. Five to one, five to two, and five to one again. All three of the Bruins' losses, they have given up five goals. They've scored two or less goals, and they didn't score first. If the Bruins can score first, it puts them in a much better position mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, and just. Because you can play your game. You don't have to adjust or dictate the way you want to play the game based on the natural state of what the current game is giving you, being down by one or even two goals. Going up two goals puts the pressure on the Hurricanes to score three if they wanted to finish that game, uh, finish that series in game six. But they weren't able to do so, and the Bruins were able to really capitalize. Now, one thing that really impressed me about the Bruins in this game game 6 last night was the fact that they killed off four straight penalty kills they killed four straight penalty kills against the carolina hurricanes including a 5 on 3 for about a minute unbelievable i believe i forget when that occurred i think the bruins were up to nothing i believe at the time still so obviously the, the hurricanes or maybe it was even 2-1 at that point i'm not sure but even then, the Hurricanes were still in a position to score you know, a bunch of goals on those four power plays. And the Bruins just weren't able to do so. Uh, the, the Hurricanes just weren't able to do so where the Bruins weren't letting anything in. Nothing was getting by them. And that really showed just the way they were just being able to play aggressive defense and focus on defense. Want to know why? Because they had the lead in their pocket. So they could just focus on, all right, don't let up a goal. Don't let up a goal. Do not let up a goal. Get the puck, clear it out, send it the length of the ice. Whereas if you're down in that position, even by a goal, facing four straight penalty kills, you have to not only not let a goal in, play defense, and clear the puck the length of the ice, but you also have to flip it around and go score a goal yourself, whether that be shorthanded or right when the penalty kill expires. So the Bruins were really able to focus on their game plan, their strategy, and the way they wanted to play by simply going up one nothing. And yes, going up two nothing obviously helped because when the Carolina Hurricanes first scored their first goal, the Bruins uh, already had two goals, so it was still two to one. If the Bruins didn't score that second goal, now it's one-to-one. It's a fresh, brand-new hockey game. That's why that second goal was so important for the Bruins because whether it was 2-0 or 2-1, all you had to do is not let up a goal because all the pressure is still on the Hurricanes to score two more goals. I think the major key for the Bruins, if they want to win Game 7 in Carolina, is you have to score first. I mean, we were able to clearly see it from the Carolina Hurricanes perspective that they scored first in all the previous five games and they were able to win three of them. Now, obviously, you can't guarantee yourself a win when you score first, but it definitely does help, especially when you break it down the way that I just broke it down the past, what, five minutes? So I, I'm i not going to sit here and say that if the Bruins score first in Game 7, they're going to win. I'm not going to say that. But it will definitely help. And if the Bruins do score first, then I do like their chances. Yes, it's going to be uh, away in a hostile environment in Carolina, which is going to be a completely different atmosphere than when you're playing in home uh, at the TD Garden. And it's going, to, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle from the, uh, the first puck drop to the last horn. And win or lose, I want the Bruins to go out there playing with their heart on their sleeve, full of energy, playing like you have nothing to lose because if you lose you're going home but if you're playing like you have nothing to lose and you go out there and win then you move on so you have to go out there with motivation determination and you have to go get that dub you just have to I mean if the Bruins go out there and play like they played in game one or game two and what was the point of your victory in game six what was the point so I have faith I have confidence. I think they can do it. They should be able to do it. But will they do it? That is the big question. That will be decided for tomorrow, Saturday, when the Bruins play against the Carolina Hurricanes in Raleigh, North Carolina, tomorrow. I believe puck drop will be at 4.30. I know last night the time, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, last night the game time was going to be determined. However, it looks like 4.30 may be puck drop in North Carolina, but we'll just have to wait and see for that to be officially uh, slated in the NHL playoff schedule. But let's move on to the Boston Celtics and their atrocity that they uh, endured in Game 5, in their respective Game 5. Now, Celtics, it was back and forth early in the game, then they took control, but my biggest thing for the Celtics, and it was a big problem for them early in the season, was blowing leads. And they did it again. And they did it again. They blew a lead in game five, all you had to do is grab a rebound on Wednesday, May 11th when they lost 110 to 107, to the Milwaukee Bucks in game five, where the Bucks now have a three to two lead with that game at the garden. Now you have to go to Milwaukee for game six, tip off 730 tonight, and you have to get a win. You absolutely have to get. so literally a complete opposite for the Bruins. Um, here for the Celtics where the Bruins were game six home, but the Celtics are game six on the road. What are the Celtics going to look like now? I have confidence that they'll be able to win game six in Milwaukee. Why? Because they were able to win game four in Milwaukee. So we know we can sit here and say that the Celtics can win in Milwaukee. We know that they won 116 108 in game four. Okay, yes, they lost Game 3, 103-101, but look how close that game was. That game easily could have gone either way. Game 5 easily went either way. So I'm not sitting here nervous and saying that, oh, the home team has won every single game, we're going to Milwaukee, and you know, we're not looking good. Whereas that's you know, not the case for the Bruins in the Hurricanes series where the home team has won every game. But now the Celtics have to win the next two games, obviously being down 3-2. to two. I saw a stat at the end of Game Five that team that goes up 3-2 in Game Five wins the series 83% of the time. Now, that's a pretty big percentage. I'm not gonna lie. But then there was another stat saying that the Celtics have the most come-from-behind victories when down in the series three games to two. Will that change this series, or I should say, will that be able to stay the same this series? Who knows? Again. Do I have confidence in the Celtics that they can do it? Yes. We've gone gone into Milwaukee. We've won. We know what we need to do. We played excellent defense basically all series long. The most points we've given up was, uh, was it 110? It was 110, and that was in Game 5. That is the most points you've given up all series long. I'll take that. I'll absolutely take that. But the biggest difference for the Celtics, or I should say the biggest reason why the Celtics lost Game 5 is... They got too relaxed. They were playing ahead, but they got way too relaxed. Instead of still applying pressure, playing some full-court defense, putting the pressure on Milwaukee to go out and make the plays. You were up 14 points with 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. In the playoffs, you cannot blow that kind of lead. That's seven possessions. All you have to do is go pound for pound with them. They score two, you score two. They score three, you score three. They score two, you score three. Whatever, whatever, whatever. In the playoffs, you can't do that. And I'm hoping that the Celtics see that. All right, hey, we were up by double digits. Let's not take the foot off the gas, all right? Because if we do, we could lose and then we're done. So what do we have to lose? Absolutely nothing if we just go out there and play our asses off. Again, if you're up by double digits, go ahead and put in like a Peyton Pritchard, or put in a Derek White to play that little bit of full-court pressure just to make it a little bit more difficult on Drew Holiday, Giannis, just those guys that are scoring points for them. I mean, Bobby Portis, you know, grabbed a couple huge rebounds and made some crazy shots towards the end. He was a massive difference maker. All you had to do was just get a damn rebound in the final minute, and the game's over. But, 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 the game should not have come down to that. That's the thing. The game should not have come down to a rebound. Bobby Portis made a great play. It should not have come down to that. Box out, grab the rebound. Now, you could obviously look at Marcus Smart driving baseline and, you know, Drew Holiday made a huge play. Why is Marcus Smart have the ball? I don't know. Why is Marcus Smart have the ball with, you know, 4 seconds left dribbling up the court and then he gets stolen again? I don't know. But the thing is the game should not have come down to that. There was no guarantee Marcus Smart was going to make that layup. There's no guarantee that Marcus Smart was going to make a, a 30-foot three-pointer. The game should not come down to that point. That's the thing. You could look at Marcus Smart and be like, oh, he didn't grab the rebound. Oh, he you know missed the layup or Drew Holiday stole it and threw it off him. Oh, Marcus Smart got stripped with seconds left. Yes, 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 yes. But it should not have gotten to that point that's the big thing i do think the celtics can still win this series a lot of people pegged this series to go six seven games probably the majority of people pegged it to go seven games but it's not going to go seven games unless you play aggressive play your style you're going to be in a hostile environment but again we know you can win there this series has gone back and forth between home team winning away team winning It, it doesn't matter Home court does matter in the NBA. Yes, it matters the most in all of the sports. But if you can get to a big lead, a double-digit lead, it doesn't matter if you're home or away. If you keep applying the pressure and playing to your full potential for 48 consecutive minutes, then it doesn't matter if you're home or away. I, I mean, the Celtics played good in every single game this series except game one. And in game one, they only lost by 12 points. I mean, yes, only twelve points, but like I mean, that's a lot in the playoffs. But still, you make a couple adjustments here, you wake up and, and you know, you don't get so far behind early in the first. In the game could either look closer, you might even be able to sneak that game out, who knows? But every single game has been close. I mean, the Bucs' worst loss was what, seventeen points in game two? Celtics responded, but since then, two point win for the Bucks, eight point win for the Celtics in game four, and then a three point win in game five for the Bucs. This series is more close and even than we thought. It really is, or at least it's proving to be as close and as even as we thought between the defending champions and the best defense in the NBA. Now, with that being said, what kind of pressure is Giannis going to be on? I think he's going to be on a lot. You're going to see Marcus Smart guarding him a lot, Horford, Grant Williams, probably Tatum, probably Brown. I wouldn't be surprised if Derek White gets on him too. He's going to get everybody. you going to put fresh bodies on Giannis at all times because if you could put five, six different guys on Giannis, that's really going to wear him down because Giannis is only one dude. One guy dribbling the ball, one guy shooting the ball. You put six different defenders on him, that's six different bodies that can come and go off the bench or come and go off the weak side or whatever and just work it that way. But in the same right, what is Tatum's matchup going to be looking like? Because we could probably sit here and expect Tatum to play 45 minutes, arguably 48 minutes. You could argue Jalen Brown's probably going to play 45, 48 minutes because you need to win this game. The only way that those two come out for a little bit is if they're up by 20 points. And once that lead gets down to 15, Ime Odoka better put their ass back in the game. You have to play it like that. But how can the Celtics get to that 20-point lead to begin with? Well, I think 20-point is just a little bit too much. 10, 15, you have to get to that point. But you have to start early. You have to take the crowd out of that game early. Insert yourself as the dominant team, as the better team. Yes, you're on the road, but if you can take that crowd out within the first six, seven minutes of play, then it's not going to feel like a hostile environment. It's not going to feel like a road game. It's not going to feel like you're in another team's arena. Because if you can take that stadium out, they're going to be dependent. The crowd is going to be dependent on the Bucks making a string of big plays. Let's hypothetically say the Celtics go up 15 in the first quarter, right, or early second quarter. That crowd is going to be completely taken out of it, and that crowd won't go get back into it unless the Bucks hit two threes in a row or cut the lead down to single digits. But if you play good basketball, good team basketball, control the pace, control the tempo, then we may never see the crowd get back into it. Or they're going to be forced to get back into it. They're going to be down, you know, 18. Like, let's go Bucks. So, I mean, the Celtics will need to dictate the pace of play, how that game is operated. And if they can take the Bucks fan base out of the arena and just suck the life out, then again, it's not going to feel like an away game. And, you know, it's going to be a lot more even in terms of, you know, being in a hostile environment. I like the Celtics chances again, same thing with the Bruins. Could they win? Yes. Should they win? Yes. Will they win? I don't know. I think they can win. And I know a lot of people around here say that they think they can win too. A lot of people around here had the Celtics winning in seven games. Personally, I think I had, I don't remember. I don't remember if I, uh, picked uh, like Bucks or Celtics in six or seven games. I mean, I don't don't remember. Hmm. I might have picked the Celtics in six, maybe six or seven. I don't know. But like the Bruins last night, we need to fully support the Celtics here in game six to force a game seven. There is nothing better in sports than a game seven. You can arguably say the Super Bowl, fine. You can arguably say the Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl is just one game. It's not a series. This is the Super Bowl of the series. Game seven. You fought your asses off for six games, winning three and heartbreakingly losing three more. But it doesn't matter. Get to game seven. Anything can go. Like right now, I'm focused on the Bruins in their game seven. Right now, I could care two shits about the uh, Celtics in their game seven because all I'm focused on is game six. But win Game 6 and get me to Game 7. If the Celtics can pull off Game 6, I think they'll have a ton of momentum. I think that will really carry them through a Game 7, especially where they will have home court. Not going to say that they're guaranteed to win Game 7 because you can't guarantee anything in a Game 7. But I think that momentum shift will really help. Right now, that momentum's with Milwaukee. They went into Boston and they won Game 5 in Boston. Now they get to go home and finish the series, complete the series, and beat the Celtics on their home court. However, if you can win Game 6 in Milwaukee, you will have that same momentum, maybe even more because now you're going to face a Game 7 in Boston. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. But that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I really tried to talk a lot about all three teams, Red Sox, Celtics, and the Bruins, obviously, Big playoff series going on right now for the Celtics and Bruins, respectively. Obviously, the Red Sox are going through their own issues. But I really hope you enjoyed episode number 142 of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I really appreciate everybody for downloading, listening, and enjoying to the podcast, as always. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please make sure you like, comment, and subscribe, as I will greatly appreciate the love and support that way. But that is going to do it for this one. Please, please, please enjoy the amazing weather that we're going to have here in the New England area as it is supposed to be in the low 80s this weekend, and I am beyond excited. You guys know I hate the cold. I love the hot weather, and it is finally, finally coming. With that being said, go Celtics, go Bruins, and Red Sox, figure yourself out. Hopefully, I'll see you in the next one, but between now and then, you guys know that I love you, and I will always, always see you.